Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. The 2018 Sundance Film Festival is presenting 110 independent films from 29 countries. The festival is hosting screenings in Park City, Salt Lake City, and at Sundance Mountain Resort through Sunday. And one of several films that had its world premiere at the festival is Quiet Heroes, directed and co-produced by Salt Lake City-based filmmaker Jenny McKenzie. Here's how producers describe the film. In Salt Lake City, Utah, the socially conservative religious monoculture complicated the AIDS crisis, where patients in the entire state and Intermountain region relied on only one doctor. This is the story of her fight to save a maligned population everyone else seemed willing to just let die. And uh, we bring in uh, the filmmaker, Jenny McKenzie, from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. And I understand uh, we just sort of lucked into your schedule here we, as we set this up. So thanks for joining us. No, I'm happy to be with you. Um, and you've seen several films as well, uh, as well as the world premiere of, of the film you're involved with, so we'll talk about that as we go along. We bring in, in studio here, uh, Mary Hears, who uh, is, has volunteered this year, and Mary, I guess, six years passed at the, at the film festival. That's right. And so we'll talk about, you've seen several of the, of the films, and uh, Carrie Bringhurst, our UPR news director, who's uh, done reporting from Sundance this year. Good morning, Jenny and Mary and Tom. Good to be with you. Thanks for everyone for joining us. <clears throat> uh, let me start with uh, Jenny McKenzie, um, the, the, the film Quiet Heroes. We'll get to talking about that a little later in the program in depth, but uh, had its world premiere. How did, how did that go? It was really unbelievable. We Our world premiere was at the Rose Wagner Theater, and we had a sold-out screening, and we had a standing ovation that went through the credit roll. Mm. So I just, I don't think it could have been any better. It really was remarkable and uh, so fun to be able to premiere a local story at the amazing Sundance Film Festival and that venue. I mean, Rose Wag- Wagner is just an unbelievable venue. So it was fantastic. So Mary Harris, you were at that premiere, I believe. Yes, hello, Jenny. I'm a volunteer at the Rose Wagner and I was just blown away by the compassion um, of Dr. Reese and Maggie Snyder and their willingness to take on patients when everyone else was sending them away. But I also was uh, moved by the love story of Dr. Reese and Maggie. And, you know, thanks for the best film that I saw so far. Oh, I love hearing that, Maggie, Mary. And I so appreciate that because, you know, I think about it that way. I think it's a film that is a love story. And to me, the remarkable piece is the love and compassion that Maggie and Dr. Reese show to their patients. And then you have that remarkable love story between the two of them as human beings, but also as human beings who adore their work and really are, it really is a hero's journey because these women in the face of adversity did what needed to be done and they stepped up and they took care of a marginalized population that was being shunned by their family, by their community. And uh, it really is. It's a film, from my perspective, that is about all that is good in humanity. It's about acceptance, inclusion, love, 
and compassion, as as you said. And it's also about providing medical care for everybody. And kudos to the nuns at Holy Cross Hospital that uh, <laughs> were willing to open a ward for AIDS patients. Thanks yes. for finding those people. Yeah, well, you know, it really was a remarkable partnership between Dr. Reese, Maggie, and the Sisters of the Holy Cross. And historically, the Sisters of the Holy Cross have taken care of marginalized populations, and they've done some remarkable work. But I felt so lucky to find Sister Linda and Sister Bernie through Maggie and Dr. Reese and be able to interview them because really going back and and sharing that story um, was remarkable. We have to remember history because I think we're continuing to repeat history. So those times and the kind of action and compassion that we see is, is something that we very much need now. Well, we'll uh, return to talking about Quiet Heroes a little later in the, the program. I want to get an overview of what's uh, been going on. Uh, Carrie Bringhurst, you did some reporting. What, what stood out to to you. So this was my first time um, attending Sundance. I've lived in Utah all of my life. First time attending the film festival. And Jenny, I saw you on one of the shuttle buses. I think you had just watched something <laughs> at the Eccles in Park City and you were in the back. I was in the front. And, um, and that's what a lot of time is spent on those shuttle buses, trying to get from the different venues, the different theaters. And um, I was amazed at the um, how the festival organizers are able to coordinate and manage everything because really the, the the large part of attending this festival is to be able to experience the talents of of the cinematographers, the directors, um, the artists themselves, but also there's a big push to promote the product and um, a lot that goes on within the industry that I think we don't realize until we actually attend um, how many uh, deals are made at the Sundance Film Festival. I receive information every day of these different movies, these films being purchased uh, for distribution. Um, and and there's a lot that goes into that, uh, a lot of media interviews to try and promote the product. And yes, there's a lot of celebrity stuff going on, but there's a lot going on um, as far as negotiations and in, in who's going to purchase these films for for distribution, so they can be made available to the general public. Yeah, it's a big scene as well as the the, the films. Uh, Mary, here's how, maybe this is a good time, place to bring this in. You uh, saw a film about uh, Robin Williams, right? I did. What, what struck you? A lot of celebrities around. This film, in part, was about celebrity. Yes. Uh, one thing is, I didn't grow up watching uh, Mr. Rogers, so I was uh, very pleased uh, to find out that he really tackled current events and tried to make them comprehensible to his young viewers. But uh, one thing I love about volunteering uh, at Sundance, especially in the first time, uh, first few days, is the producers and the directors and the actors are there, like Jenny. But the uh, they have question and answer afterwards, which personally I think is sometimes more interesting than the film. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. For example, before Mr. Rogers' uh, film was made, the wife of uh, the deceased Mr. Rogers made the director promise not to make him a saint. Mm. Okay, yeah. Did they succeed? In that? My, my impression of Mr. Rogers is pretty saintly. 
Uh, no, they succeeded. Okay, uh, all right. But you wouldn't if you hadn't gone to the question and answer, you would have never known yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about the, the film about Mr. Rogers. Yes. I referenced yeah, well, Robin well, Williams. Uh, so Well, let, let me just add about Mr. Rogers, um, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Um, I think in the world of public media and broadcasting, um, he holds a, a special place in our hearts. And uh, during the film, they showed uh, his presenting before Congress about the public broadcasting um, theme, which is to provide information to the public without any commercial impact or uh, this influence that we oftentimes see and I think are really feeling right now. And um, for me, that was that was a very endearing part of, of the film to to realize. And I don't know that that maybe the younger population realizes how public broadcasting came about and why that is so important then and is today. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a famous scene where he's testifying before Congress and you can just see the cold heart of the committee chairman melt as uh, as Mr. Rogers um um, testifies before, before yeah. Congress. You know, it's funny, Mary and Carrie, I saw, I was at the premiere of Won't You Be My Neighbor with my daughter, who did not grow up on Mr. Rogers, and I did, and she and I were both just crying at the end, and she, I, I just think, again, that shows the multi-generational appeal of a story that, much like Quiet Heroes, is really about compassion and kindness and being a good person. I love that film. I love Morgan Neville. I think he's one of the most talented documentary filmmakers who's out there. And I'm just, I'm so excited for that film to reach the world. Uh, Jenna McKenzie, what, uh, well, you've uh, not only been premiering the film you're involved with, you've been an avid consumer of films uh, so far, and I'm sure continuing through the festival, what's uh, what, what's uh, the next film you wanted to mention stood out to you? <laughs> well, I've seen six films so far, and it's fantastic. I went to New York for the director's orientation, and John Cooper, the director of the festival, had three great quick words of advice in this five-hour orientation that we did, and he said, number one, don't buy into the hype. It's just hype. He said, number two, be kind. There are so many amazing volunteers and staff who are there for you, so be kind to them. And number three, see movies. You're there with some incredible films, and there's so many amazing artists there, so see films. So I've really tried to focus on that advice. I um, So the six films that I have seen have all been really strong. I think two of my absolute favorites have been a documentary called The Sentence and made by Rudy Valdez, and it's a remarkable film about mandatory drug sentencing, and his sister actually receives a 15-year sentence six years after she was with a boyfriend who was a big drug kingpin, and she really didn't do anything except for she just observed, you know, these illegal behaviors. So it's really about these crazy sentences 
that we still give to people who really haven't committed violent crimes. And he shows the film is told through the point of view of her three young children and they're being raised without their mother. So it is I went through an entire thing of tissues. It is just raw and powerful, so beautifully shot. And I think it really brings up an important call to action, which is really the overhaul we need to do with our sentencing procedures in the criminal justice system. Uh, maybe you could mention your other top favorite, and then we'll go to Carrie for her uh, her favorites. Sure. I think the other, uh, one of my other favorites was a narrative that I saw called Private Life. And Tamara Jenkins is the writer and director. She did The Savages about 10 years ago. And it is a brilliant narrative that is actually about a couple going through an infertility process and trying to have a child. And it's just, it's intimate. It's so funny. The acting Paul Giamatti, and I'm forgetting the amazing um, actress who is opposite Paul Giamatti, but it is superb. I just, um, I loved it on every level. Carrie, your uh, favorite film or films? Well, I I was just um, nodding at Jenny's comment about um, the directors being advised to not deal with the hype and to really focus on the films. And I think as a rookie, that was one mistake I made. My first couple of days there is um, I spent my time running around trying to make it to all the different venues. And I I did see some amazing things. I was able to attend the Moth. Um, That's a... PRX's, is it PRX or PRI? It's PRX. I believe it's PRX, um, yeah. Anyway, they, they had a live showing of The Moth, which is, a huge, I, you know, those are my peeps, the public radio peeps, and really enjoyed that, but did not take advantage of the opportunity to see as many films as, as I would have liked. So I'm headed back this weekend. But one film I did see, and I really like international movies, and so I took advantage of the opportunity to see the dark comedy Pity, and um, I, that captured my attention because... I think um, I've been experiencing not just in in my own community, but in a worldwide community, um, this sense of despair and pity that we hear so much about. And so wanted to see kind of a comic version of that, of somebody who was basically addicted to being pitied. And um, to my shock and and surprise, the ending was very different than um, what I had planned. And I ended up being horrified at the end, by the end of the movie because um, it's not what I had expected. But the, the entire movie was um, very well done. I was able to interview the director of that movie and talk to him a little bit about one aspect that resonated with his culture in Greece and the culture that we experience here in the predominantly LDS uh, communities of Utah, and that was the sharing of food when somebody is experiencing sadness or hardship and his wife was in a coma and his neighbor would prepare he and his son a an orange cake each morning for breakfast to the point where he would stand by the door and wait for her to knock <laughs> so when the the wife recovers he's he's 
overcome with sadness that he will no longer be getting this orange cake for breakfast every morning and starts knocking on her door, the neighbor's door, saying, would you please prepare me this orange cake? And of course, she was disgusted. And and I, I said, we have that kind of in common with our culture here in Utah. We use food to try and comfort and ease the hardship of others. And we had a nice little discussion about that. Mm-hmm. But yes, I would definitely agree with Jenny that going and seeing the films and experiencing um, whatever, whatever you like, the world cinema, again, um, I I love international movies. I'm interested in seeing some of the indigenous movies, some of which um, feature uh, some of the the news headlines we've been seeing with Standing Rock. And and mm-hmm. so, um, but again, don't get caught up in, I mean, the parties are fun. It's, it's fun to see what's out there, and, and they really are promoting a lot of products. But we're there, and you should be there to experience the, the films. Uh, Murray, you've seen several films. We mentioned uh, one or two. What's next on your list? Uh, well, uh, continuing the theme of uh, international films, I saw a fantastic documentary called Kalish, which was um, the story of a courageous man in India who uh, was trying to end uh, child labor. Um, it, it, the film showed the harsh reality of poverty, where parents would sell their children to uh, labor brokers um, and never see them again. Uh, but uh, the harsh reality was mitigated by the fact this man was doing everything to raid these manufacturing places and rescue the children. Uh, he was there for the question and answers and led us in some chance, and we all left the theater promising to fight, uh, fight the fight against child labor. Hmm. Murray, you also saw, I'm not, I'm not sure if, uh, Jenny, you saw this as well, uh, another film with uh, very strong Utah connections. It's called Believer. I haven't right. seen Believer, but okay. I've heard about it yeah. and know some of the filmmakers that worked on it, and I've heard great things. This is the front man for Imagine Dragons, right? Um, yes. Uh, who who is, is, is Dan. kind of, mm-hmm. he's, he's talking about his affiliation with the uh, LDS Church and, uh, and s- some tensions uh, there, yeah, Mary, I you, saw you, that saw, film. you saw the film. Tell us about it. Uh, it was fantastic. Um, I think Dan Reynolds was trying to open the dialogue against shaming. Um, and kudos to his wife, who held his feet to the fire, and insisted that he just take it on. Uh, so I'd encourage everyone to try and see that film. Mm-hmm. Well, we are. Uh, Yes, Carrie. I just, I need to take off. But before I leave, one thing that um, I, I think, I mentioned the moth. And the reason they were there at the Sundance Film Festival it was to demonstrate different ways of sharing stories and sharing experiences. So there was that because uh, that was a live performance of storytelling. There's also some really interesting things being done with technology, especially in the world of virtual reality. And if, if you know, you're planning to attend, um, there are different venues where you can go and experience these virtual reality cinematic experiences. So, you know, in addition to sitting in a theater, which is great and my favorite, um, there are some opportunities for those of us who kind of want to um, immerse ourselves entirely in this virtual reality aspect of, of what they're sharing at, at, at Sundance. So it's a great time. Hope to see some of you there this weekend. And a, a big deal in excess of uh, 100 films. Uh, anything else you'd like to say, Murray, before we go to break? Yes. Um, I think what I love about Sundance is what I call the Sundance buzz. And that <laughs> is where people talk 
to strangers. I I don't usually go up to people on the sidewalk and ask them what films they've seen recently. But, you know, at Sundance, that's the first question you ask anyone. <laughs> and you ask everyone standing next to you in line. Uh, you ask them what they liked about films, that there's a, really an open market of ideas and a sense of uh, being part of a community. Um, we are talking Sundance. Sundance 2018 is continuing through Sunday, and uh, we're going to say goodbye now to Mary Harris, who's uh, been volunteering at uh, Sundance, uh, continuing a tradition of, uh, of longstanding. And Carrie Bringhurst, our news director, has been reporting from Sundance. And before I take off, I do want to pitch a story for tomorrow where I'll be talking about um, the product push and how they're using food trucks to help sell products and, and bring people into um, their venues. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. That's during Morning Edition and All Things Considered tomorrow here on oh, UPR. Oh, look forward to that. It sounds fun. Uh, we'll continue after a break with Jenny McKenzie, filmmaker. She uh, is director of an interesting film. We'll get to talking about that in specific called Quiet Heroes, uh, based on the, the story of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and a story of one doctor who provided uh, services in Utah and the Intermountain West. And we'll have more on that uh, following this break. Thank you. Did you know Appreciate that students it. with disabilities can go to college? Students from all over the nation with disabilities want to have careers, and many are taking college classes. As these young adults learn to socialize and interact with others, they live with roommates and receive support from mentors, tutors, and assistive technology. Students become more independent as they find internships and employment leading to meaningful career paths. Students with intellectual or developmental disabilities can thrive in a higher education environment as they explore the full college experience. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Hi, this is Woody from Rochester, New York. I listen to Bullseye because it's a great way to catch up on all the great art and culture that I want to hear about. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, I'm talking with Ricky Lindholm and Natasha Legero of the Comedy Central show Another Period, plus L.A. hip-hop pioneer The Egyptian Lover. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us a Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah, and uh, we are appreciative of you uh, listening to uh, this uh, this uh, topic, Sundance, and we want you to participate in the program. Uh, if you've uh, seen a, a movie that you're especially excited about this year's festival, we'd love to hear about it, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or maybe you haven't been to the festival, you want to especially hear about a film that you you've heard about it's getting some buzz so uh, email us about that upraxcess at gmail.com and uh, continuing with us is filmmaker jenny mckenzie uh from kcpw studios in salt lake city we're appreciative of them uh hosting uh, jenny mckenzie uh for us uh jenny mckenzie is director of a film which had its uh, world premiere at the festival quiet heroes and uh, here is how producers describe the film. In Salt Lake City, Utah, the socially conservative religious monoculture complicated the AIDS crisis, where patients in the entire state and Intermountain region called uh, or relied on only one doctor 
This is the story of her fight to save a maligned population everyone else seemed willing to just let die. Uh, I want to get in talking about the film in specific. Uh, first of all, Jenny McKenzie, um, Mary, uh, as she was leaving, uh, I wondered if we'd talk a little bit about uh, wait list and the fact that even if you don't have a ticket, you could perhaps get into some films. I don't know if you've experienced uh, that. Absolutely. Don't be discouraged if films are sold out because the wait list is really handled so well electronically. You just you have to go and sign up on the Sundance website and then two hours before time you hit a button and then you're actually put in an electronic wait list queue and then you go and I think it's 45 minutes before the film you sort of stand in line based on your numbers And I know for our premiere at the Rose Wagner that was online sold out, they got 42 people in off the wait list. So the wait list is a fabulous option, and people should definitely um, use that. What does it mean to to have a film at uh, Sundance? You've had your premiere there at uh, at Sundance. Does that boost boost sales for the film? Oh, Tom, I mean, there are no words to describe the experience. I mean, it's really, it is the world's most premier film festival. And yes, it. the nice thing about Sundance is so many distributors come to Sundance. So the opportunity to potentially sell your film and get great distribution increases enormously. But it's also, I mean, it is just incredible to be included with so many other amazing films and artists and directors and producers that have worked for many, many, many years doing other films and then come together at this great event. And I'm wondering, maybe this is a question I can throw out to, uh, you know, if you're listening in Tori or Springdale or or somewhere, and and I'll I'll throw it to you uh, directly. Uh, Jenny, I wonder if uh, Sundance, how how much it resonates beyond Salt Lake City, Park City. Well, I think that the buzz, as Carrie was talking about, resonates into our more rural communities. And I know one of the things that I did with my film, Dying in Vain, is I partnered with Utah Public Radio, and we brought the film into rural communities so that they had access on the big screen to see that film. I'm hoping that Quiet Heroes gets some excellent distribution so that people all over the world will be able to see the film. But if not, because it's a local story, we want to get into other communities. So we hope to do that. And Dying in Vain uh, about the opioid crisis. uh, Yes, Tom. That's right. Right. Yeah. Um, a, a wonderful film. Uh, so let's Thank talk you. about uh, Quiet Heroes. How did uh, how did this story come to the attention of you and your and your co-producers? The story came to my talented executive producer, who's also a producer and a co-director. And he was 26 years old at the time and in graduate school. And his law professor. He found out about the story through his law professor, and then he and I got together, and he pitched the story to me and hired me to direct and produce the film. So I think for him, he really knew it was an important story 
for us to tell in Utah's history. We've told the history, we've told stories of AIDS and HIV on either coast in New York during ACT UP and in San Francisco, but really the story hasn't been told about what it was like in the early years in the heartland of the American West. So that's what makes this story unique. And Dr. Reese and Maggie, along with the Sisters of the Holy Cross, were the only ones who opened their doors and treated patients who were dying and dying a painful death, but also suffering emotionally. And the emotional pain really was undescribable because they were being rejected by their families. They were being rejected by friends and their churches and their culture. So the work that Dr. Reese and Maggie provided for these men was not only important medical care, but it was significant emotional support as well. So we're talking about uh, physician Kristen Reese and her physician assistant, Maggie Snyder. This is the 1980s. And, uh, you know, that's nationwide and Utah was not immune. A lot of misunderstanding about uh, HIV and AIDS and uh, it really hit it uh, culture in it and especially religious cultures who were sure, trying, sure. To, trying to grapple with this. Yeah, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear. And when you don't have information and you don't have that knowledge, Tom, fear can make people do things like ostracize people they love and reject people they love. And I think it was a very hard situation for families that were very, very scared. And so what uh, uh, you know, um, some of these stories in the in the film, but um, here in Utah, it is really hit home because this is about a, a, the only this ended up being the only doctor who would take these uh, patients. Um, what would, uh, you know, a, a person diagnosed with AIDS would, would be often ostracized from the family, from the religious community, even from the medical community? Absolutely. I mean, there were doctors that really closed their doors and didn't want to treat patients. And again, I think that came from a place of fear and not understanding the disease. But I think it came from a place where there was a lot of moral judgment and we really didn't see this as the disease that it really is, just a medical disease. We really saw it as moral failure. And these were people who didn't deserve the kind of treatment that others deserved. But when we were telling the story, I think what was important early on as we began production was you can't just tell the story through the point of view of Dr. Reese and Maggie Snyder. We really wanted to bring in other families who were their former patients so that they could talk about their experiences with Dr. Reese and with Maggie, but really their experiences of having AIDS in the 80s and the 90s and what that was like. So we profile three of their former patients, and I think those families really nicely represent the diversity that their practice had. So we have one family. Her name is Kim Smith, and she's just a remarkable woman. And she was diagnosed with HIV because her husband transmitted the disease to her. 
So they were active LDS members, and her husband was gay but couldn't come out of the closet and transmitted the disease to her. Her story is really remarkable, and it's about, from my perspective, it's about family, it's about faith, and ultimately it's about forgiveness. And then we profile two other former patients, Peter Christie, who was a principal dancer for Ballet West, and he survived just really um, by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin. He was alive just in time for the right medications and the right combinations of medications. So his story is just lovely because he is the survivor. And it's also so beautiful because we're able to use archival ballet materials and to juxtapose the illness when men would be so, so sick with the beautiful human body of a ballet dancer is, uh, is really lovely. And then finally, there's a third family that we profile. And the mother who passes away from AIDS is an activist. And because she's a woman and is treated differently, she feels, than gay men, she really stands up and becomes a voice and actually uh, sues the state of Utah. I want to um, I want to get into the personal story of Kristen Reeves and, uh, and Maggie Snyder, also the nuns at Holy Cross, but uh, I wonder if we could paint the scene a little more because I think we maybe have a tendency to forget what it was like in the 80s. That's a service the film can provide, I suppose, so going back to, to, to remember how it was. Um, so I'm reading a review here in the Salt Lake Tribune, and uh, I had I had not even been aware of, of this, that uh, the, the AIDS was, uh, at that time, in some circles, being called gay-related immunity disorder, or GRID, or gay cancer. Correct. It was, I mean, it was called the gay plague. It was called the gay cancer. So there were several names before they really called it AIDS. And uh, to um, this, the, the first story that you mentioned, uh, this was not completely unusual, right? Uh, gay Mormon men were encouraged to, to marry. You, you didn't, were not encouraged to come out of the closet. You were encouraged to try to cure yourself by, uh, by uh, getting to a heterosexual marriage. Yeah, absolutely. There's a section in the film and Kristen and Maggie and some of our other uh, experts and subjects in the film really talk about the shame and the stigma. And the challenge is many of these men who were in heterosexual marriages wanted to do the right thing. But I think what comes through in the film is clearly being gay is not a choice. It is not a moral failure or a moral decision that these people are making. It's a part of who they are. So sadly, I think when men got into a marriage and had a family, but there was a part of them that clearly, you know, acted out on who they really are, which is a gay man. They then contracted the disease because you almost denied your 
who you were as a gay person because there was so much shame and stigma. So that was so closeted that you didn't protect yourself sexually. Hmm. I want to get into talking about the specific doctor here, Kristen Reeves, by talking about the medical community as, as a whole. 1980s, Utah. Why did it end up being that uh, Kristen Reeves was the only one, the only doctor providing well, services? As as one of our historical experts says, I, I truly think it was luck for Utah. We got really fortunate because Dr. Reese moved here from Vermilion, Vermilion, South Dakota. And is it South Dakota or North Dakota? Boy, Tom? I, I get um, that confused. Yeah. Yes, I know. And she had already been a physician who had done remarkable things for marginalized populations. She had worked in inner city Philadelphia in communities of color that really had poor access to health care. She had worked on an Indian reservation for years. So she clearly was someone who, as an infectious disease physician, cared about disease and disease transmission, and that fascinated her, but she really cared about medicine and good medicine and care for all people. So she moved to Utah in 1981, and that was really at the very beginning of the epidemic, and we got lucky because the disease fascinated her and she wanted to learn more. And she really just started treating men. And then the disease got so bad so quickly that there was just no time to, to stop or turn around. And she was treating so many patients so quickly. Did other doctors uh, refuse to, to treat AIDS patients or they or didn't have the knowledge what had... I guess part of this was self-selecting. The word got out that uh, if you had AIDS, you could you'd go to Dr. Reese, but uh, on the part of the medical community. Yeah. I mean, I think there were some other physicians who we've actually, at a couple of our screenings, talked to some remarkable local doctors who did open their doors, who were specialists. So I know, for example, I talked to a cardiologist Dr. Pierce, who opened his doors and supported the work of Dr. Reese, but he was a cardiologist, so he would only see AIDS patients that had cardiology-related side effects. But mostly, there was so much fear that other physicians and hospitals, they were afraid of infecting their other patients. They were afraid of the disease and the transmission. So they closed their doors. And it was really this Catholic hospital, Holy Cross, with the Sisters of the Holy Cross, that welcomed them with open arms. And before we had the medications to treat them, they really were there just to help them die. Mm. Yeah, early on, yeah, that's uh, I, I do remember that. It was it was pretty seemed pretty hopeless early on in terms of prognosis. Yes, in general. Uh, so the, the word gets out that uh, there's there's a doctor, Doctor Reese, who, uh, who who can who can help you, and I, I guess it ends up that she her entire practice becomes AIDS patients. It does. It does. She has a very funny moment in the film where she talks about, because she was treating quite a few geriatric patients at the time, and she said, before my practice transitioned to being only AIDS patients, 
it was the gays and the grays or the aged and the aids. And she actually said that there was a lot of happiness and love and warmth in the waiting room because they had a lot in common. And they, in that waiting room, they would talk about obituaries or they would talk about funerals that they had gone to. And uh, I think they would often share their knitting at different times. But then her practice eventually transitioned to being only uh, patients with AIDS. Mm. Uh, tell me a bit about uh, the physician assistant, Maggie Snyder, very important in the story. She, she assisted Dr. Reese. Maggie Snyder is a remarkable woman, and she came into the picture about five or six years after Dr. Reese had been here in the early 80s, and Maggie grew up in Texas, and she moved here as a nurse, and she was hired at Holy Cross Hospital, and Dr. Reese felt as though she was really one of the strongest nurses on 3A, which was the AIDS ward. And she, several years into her work as a nurse, Dr. Reese approached her and said, we need someone who can provide medical care will you consider going to get your degree as a physician's assistant? So <laughs> Dr. Reese really recruited her because I think she saw what an outstanding nurse she was and knew that she would be a great healthcare provider. Hmm. Um, tell me a, bit, a little bit more about the, the, the nuns at, uh, at Holy Cross. They're an important part of the story. Well, these... Uh, the Sisters of the Holy Cross and the two nuns that we profile in the film, Sister Bernie and Sister Linda, were a very important part of the medical team because they really provided home health care to these patients. So if the men who were suffering weren't in the hospital, they were facing so many challenges. I mean, oftentimes poverty was one of the big biggest issues they faced because they would lose their jobs and if they didn't have good insurance, medical care was expensive. The Holy Cross Hospital and Maggie and Kristen and the sisters at one point created a $5 a month policy because so many patients were destitute and they wanted them to receive medical care, but $5 a month at least gave them the opportunity to feel like they were contributing to the payment, but it wasn't going to make them go broke. But the Sisters of the Holy Cross really provided home health care. So they would visit these men. They would stock their fridges with food. They would bathe them. They would bring them clean clothes. They would change their sheets. They would bring them towels and they would really, they would just provide that kind of care at the end of their lives, which was so important. If you just joined us, we're talking with filmmaker Jenny McKenzie. She's director of a new film. It had its premiere at uh, Sundance. Um, Quiet Heroes is the name of the film. It's about the, the AIDS crisis in Utah, 1980s, and uh, a doctor. She became really the only doctor who was... Uh, treating uh, AIDS patients, um, Kristen Reese, 
and uh, her physician assistant, uh, Maggie Snyder. Um, and uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, you can do it by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Let's take a short break, and uh, when we come back, we'll pick up uh, the story. Hi, this is Woody from Rochester, New York. I listen to Bullseye because it's a great way to catch up on all the great art and culture that I want to hear about. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, I'm talking with Ricky Lindholm and Natasha Legero of the Comedy Central show Another Period, plus L.A. hip-hop pioneer The Egyptian Lover. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us a Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Association for Utah Community Health, providing support for health centers throughout Utah, such as Community Health Centers Incorporated and Enterprise Valley Medical Clinic. Information available at auch.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is also made possible in part by our members and the Planned Parenthood Association of Utah, of Utah featuring the 31st annual Valentine Chocolate Festival benefit event on February 3rd at the Riverwoods Conference Center. More information available on Facebook or at thechocolatefest.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are talking with filmmaker Jenny McKenzie from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to KCPW. Um, and uh, JennyMcKenzieFilms.com is the place to go to uh, find out about uh, her films. The latest uh, that she directed is Quiet Heroes. It's about uh, AIDS in Utah, 1980s. And uh, the only doctor uh, who was uh, treating uh, full-time uh, AIDS patients. And uh, we're talking about Kristen Reese and her longtime physician assistant, Maggie Snyder. So, Jenny McKenzie, um, maybe we could uh, pick up the, the, the story of Peter Christie, uh, ballet dancer, mm-hmm. who you say survived uh, just very narrowly. That's the story of many of uh, these men. As So, what happened? I guess advances in medicine just in, just in time? Yeah, absolutely. And if people want to see a short film about Peter Christie that we made as we were in production with Quiet Heroes, and it premiered a year and a half ago at the Damn These Heels Festival in Salt Lake in 2016. And it is available for free online on Video West, uh, Radio West's website. It's called Still Here, and it's an eight-minute short film. It's available for free online. But Peter Christie was a principal dancer who had moved to Utah from Hartford, Connecticut, where he was in their ballet company. And he actually was working with the Utah AIDS Foundation in the mid to late 80s, and he was doing a lot of AIDS awareness And he was involved in the community, not only as a principal dancer at Ballet West, but as an activist. And he was really trying to raise awareness. But I think what we see, again, because of the shame and the stigma, is that many people, particularly people at high risk, gay men, are in denial. And I think Peter was in denial of his own health and his own risk. And he was, I think it was in the early 80s and began to become symptomatic, but really ignored his symptoms. And he lost 40 pounds as a principal dancer 
at Ballet West, and this piece isn't in the film, but I remember him telling us the story. He can remember being backstage and getting ready to go out and have to lift his partner above his head, and he was just so weak he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to do it. So a couple days later, he went to get his hair cut, and his hair stylist just burst into tears because his hair was falling out, and he was so thin. And he tells this story with such emotional resonance, and she said, Peter, what is going on? You're in denial. Go to the doctor. You are sick, and you know it. And at that time, he walked into Clinic 1A because Dr. Reese and Maggie had left Holy Cross Hospital because Holy Cross had had to close its door because of bankruptcy. And they went to Clinic 1A at the University of Utah. So Peter was diagnosed at a time where we had antiviral medications that really worked for him. So he got very, very lucky. I remember uh, uh, one of the watershed moments, and this does have a Utah connection uh, diagnosis of uh, Magic Johnson. And then he, you know, he, he has this whole public uh, decision to make whether to retire from the league. In the middle of all that, Carl uh, Malone, Utah jazz player, was quoted as saying he didn't know whether he, he would play in the same game with Carl Malone because because of fears. Um, and and then uh, over time, um, Magic Johnson reports that he's essentially cured. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a turning of the story medically, maybe a beginning of a turn culturally. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the change uh, culturally and uh, from a religious perspective. Uh, how did how did that change? I mean, early on, it was in some circles, this is God's punishment to this community. And uh, then with more understanding, I guess we we get to where we are today. Well, I don't think we've changed enough religiously yet, Tom. I think we're in the process of change, and I think there is some more acceptance and a little bit more inclusion. But I think for more conservative religions, I think we still are stuck with really um, not accepting the LGBTQ community. So that is troubling, and I hope that the film will continue to create conversations about that and allow the Catholic Church, the LDS Church, to move to a place of acceptance, inclusion, and compassion so that they can have people who can be both gay and the religion that they choose. Because right now, it's a terrible predicament. People cannot be who they are if they are LGBTQ and choose the religion that they want to participate in. I wonder, just have a couple of minutes left, this would be a good place to end the conversation. Um, what lessons can we apply from the history that you recount in Quiet Heroes to perhaps situations today which have some similarities? I mean, I think the true life lesson that we can apply from Quiet Heroes is compassion and being inspired by all of the goodness that Dr. Reese, Maggie Snyder, the Sisters of the Holy Cross show us which is acceptance, inclusion, excellent 
health care for all people. So we're still in a place where we're really stuck with, you know, we don't have universal health care for all people yet. And it is still really a problem, health care disparities that exist even in our own country. And we still are at a place, despite making progress for LGBTQ communities, they're still very vulnerable. And so I think the lesson here is kindness, compassion, opening your doors, and don't let fear paralyze you. Make it open your heart and include others. So a, a labor of love here. Quiet Heroes has had its premiere. What's next with the film? Well, we have a community screening this afternoon that Sundance has sponsored at the Tower Theater at 3 p.m. Then we have our last screening tomorrow in Park City. And then we're hoping to have some very good distribution news and screen at other festivals in the coming year. All right. And uh, this is always kind of an unfair question when I ask uh, directors or authors. You've uh, you know spent so much time. You're in the middle of Quiet Heroes. Do you have another project coming up? Absolutely. I'm working on an episodic project about breast cancer in America today. So excited to get back to that project. All right. We'll look for, uh, for that to down the road. Jenny McKenzie has uh, joined us, a filmmaker. Um, and the latest film is Quiet Heroes, which had its premiere at Sundance. Sundance continues uh, through uh, Sunday. And uh, Jenny McKenzie has joined us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. And a guy came up on a bike behind me and tried to grab my phone. And so we started wrestling. I got my phone back, (laughs) and I thought, okay, that's it, that's the end of this, but it wasn't. Lessons from a mugging and other true stories in a live show from Dublin, Ireland, next time on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio. What's it like to look someone in the eyes and decide, do they live? Or do they die? Too many patients. We're running out of oxygen. You're going to murder my father? No, she can't have the oxygen. Turn it off. How could you possibly think that that's a good idea? Did you murder those patients? Playing God on the next Radio Lab. Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.